Good morning. Let us pray. Father God, may your holiness and mercy be evident today. In your name we pray. Amen. Hi, my name is Dawn Coons, and I grew up in a little farming community a couple hours north of here. And when I graduated from high school, I wanted to get as far away from farming as I could. So I moved to Indianapolis and went to Butler, and I met a farmer and married him. And he went to Zionsville Fellowship, so here I am. Do you have a treasured possession? Maybe it's your grandmother's teacup. It's very precious to you, so you put it up high to protect it. You make sure nothing is sitting around it, and you admire it. You walk by it, and you look up at it, and you think about your grandmother and things about her. When friends come over, you point it out, and you give a history of how you came to possess that teacup. Occasionally, you'll get the teacup down, and you'll clean it, being careful that the kids are asleep and the dog is put away. Well, once the dog got loose, and so you dove in front of the dog with your body, sacrificing your body to save that teacup. Well, the Israelites are God's treasured possession. Like the teacup, they were to be set apart and called to be different. God put them up high, encouraging them to stay away from those that might chip or break them. Through Moses, he gave a detailed reminder of how he brought them to where they are today. And like the special care you would give to your teacup, God gives special instructions to his people for how to remain separate and distinct. Or another word we could use is how to remain holy. But in the Israelite situation and in ours today, we aren't distinct just because we are different than other people. We are distinct as God is distinct. In our text this lesson, Moses outlines for us the way the Israelites are to be set apart in three ways. And we really focus on how they worship the Lord and avoid being drawn away by false teaching, how and what they eat, and in their tithing. When they follow these rules for these three areas, they are holy as God has called them to be. In Deuteronomy 14.2, which is near the end of our reading, Moses says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, the Lord has chosen you to be his treasured possession. Well, this is the second time that we've heard these words in Deuteronomy. If you'll recall, we memorized um, the same verse in Deuteronomy 7, 6. God says they are a people holy to the Lord. They are a people holy to the Lord. He didn't just set out one individual to be holy in this situation. He set out the whole of the Israelites. He knows we need each other. So we can be holy as an individual, but we can also be holy as a group, as he called the Israelites to be. The verse says that we're holy to the Lord. Well, what does that mean? In Leviticus 19.2, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So we are to be holy because God is holy, and we are an image of that. My note in the ESV says holiness in Leviticus 19.2 refers first and foremost to the essential nature of God. The term holy means set apart, unique, distinct. And holiness in humans ordinarily refers to their being set apart for service to God. Human holiness is the imitation of God, i.e. becoming or acting like him. So if you wanted to act like someone, what would you do? 
Actors spend months studying characters. They try to walk like them, and they try to talk like them. They try to be like them. If it's a movie based on a true story, the actor would spend time with the subject finding out everything they could about them. Well, that's what happens to us when we study the word. We begin to learn more about who God is and become more like him. We've learned in our study of Deuteronomy how gracious and compassionate God is. When we are gracious and compassionate towards others, then we are holy. So now let's dig into the three main distinctives Moses has called the Israelites to. And of course, we will see how we are called to the same distinctives. So let's start in Deuteronomy 12, 1 to 5. These are the decrees and laws you must be careful to follow in the land that the Lord, the God of your father, has given you to possess as long as you live in the land. Destroy completely all the places on the high mountains and on the hills and under every spreading tree where the nations you are dispossessing worship their gods. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and burn their Asherah poles in the fire. Cut down the idols of their gods and wipe out the names from the places. You must not worship the Lord your God in this way, but you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go. To be holy, the people were to wipe out any idol or god that wasn't related to the Lord our God. As we know, the people of this day worshipped many different gods, which is why Moses so often reiterated the one true God. We get the idea that anything that is going to distract them from worshipping the one true God had to be done away with. Anywhere the name or God's presence, we'll see that name means God's presence, wherever that was, it must be holy and not corrupted by idols. Well, these verses give us a clear outline of holiness as it relates to idols and worship. Do you worship idols? Brad Bigney, in his book Gospel Treason, says to ask yourself these questions, or better yet, have a friend answer these questions about you, which you'll see up above. What do you see me running to instead of God? For me, sometimes it's an iced tea. Where do you see a demanding spirit in me? What do you see me clinging to and craving more than God? Where do you see me wanting something so badly that I'm willing to sin to get it or willing to sin if I think I'm going to lose it? We all have idols of the heart. Brad Bigney says to move toward the idols is to move away from the gospel and the savior that the gospel proclaims. So the problem is not peripheral, it's central which is why we hear so much about idols um, in Deuteronomy and through Moses. Anything that prevents the gospel from having center stage in your life will dramatically affect the way you live and hinder the way in which you glorify God. Brad Bigney continues that we are all worshipers by nature. So isn't that interesting? That was kind of a new concept to me. If we think about all those other people who were not the Israelites, they were all worshiping something. If we turn that to us, we all worship something. But what is it that we worship? Our hearts don't just drift aimlessly. The drift is always away from the gospel, away from our Savior, and into the grip of something or someone else. Has something or someone besides Jesus Christ taken the title deed to your heart? Does something or someone else hold your heart's trust, loyalty, and desire? 
You say, of course not. I put my trust in Christ when I became a Christian. He holds the deed to my heart. Unfortunately, many times, although Christ owns the property, we live like traitors, having given the right of ownership to other people and other things. Don't give your heart away like a spiritual orphan or prostitute. The Christian life is more than just trying to stay connected to Christ and loving him. If you don't also keep a vigilant eye toward detecting idols and then destroy them, you'll inevitably get trapped. You might confess with your lips Jesus is Lord, but in your functional, practical life, what really motivates you? And this is still Brad Bigney's quote from the book Gospel Treason. Most of us have a confessional theology that looks good and lines up with sound biblical doctrine. But what really drives us on Monday morning is our practical or functional theology, which can be way out of line. You might say Jesus is Lord, but in your life, your thoughts, your desires, your affections, you might be not dominated by something such as your husband's approval, moving up the company ladder, or having the perfect family. If so, you're only fooling yourself because these other things are really your Lord, your idol. The gospel and Jesus Christ have been pushed to the margins. That other person, idea, or dream is your master, and it takes you over without you being aware of it. So often in our discussion groups, we shake our head at those Israelites. Can you believe what they've done? But then, on the other hand, we also confess that we'd probably do the same thing. So let's put ourselves in the Israelites' shoes. The first verse of chapter 12 say for the Israelites to destroy completely all the idols and that they must not worship the Lord their God in this way. So based on Brad Bigney's synopsis of idols of the heart, it might be something like this for us. Quit your job if it's an idol or at least have a serious heart change in perspective on your job. Throw out your TV. Trash it. Throw out the internet if you crave a program, show, or Facebook more than God. Stop buying new clothes if your motivation is admiration admiration from others. Stop your obsession with your house if you're driven for it to look better than your neighbors. If you're constantly disciplining your kids because of your idol of comfort, rather than growing them morally, go to your knees. Sorry, you can't throw out your kids. Brad Bigney says, anger, irritability, and verbal outbursts are indicative of heart issues gone awry. When you react to someone else, what is it that you're protecting? So this requires us to dig. What is it that you must have? Now this all seems extreme, but what the Israelites had to do was also extreme because that's what they knew to worship were idols and things. And so for them to go into a new place and destroy everything was extreme to them. Go back to the questions I mentioned earlier, find your idol, and work to destroy it. So let's go back to Deuteronomy 12, 6 through 7. To that place you must go. There, bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, what you have vowed to give, and your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. There, in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your family shall eat and shall rejoice in everything you have put your hand to, because the Lord your God has blessed you. Do you see the picture of bringing the burnt offering, the sacrifices, and the tithes? First, the Lord God Almighty, the one true God, is present there with them. How beautiful. 
and you are to bring your families and eat and rejoice. What a beautiful picture of worship. It's not a confined or stoic occasion. God is rejoicing with his people over their blessings that he provided them. That's the picture of a beautiful and compassionate father. Deuteronomy 12, 8 through 12. You are not to do as we do here today, everyone as he sees fit, since you have not yet reached the resting place and the inheritance the Lord your God is giving you. But you will cross the Jordan and settle in the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, and he will give you rest from all your enemies around you so that you will live in safety. Then to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name. There you are to bring everything I command you, your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, and all the choice possessions you have vowed to the Lord. And there rejoice before the Lord your God, you, your sons and daughters, your manservants and maidservants, and the Levites from your towns, who have no allotment or inheritance of their own. God adds your men servants and maidservants, and of course, the priests, the Levites. Several times in our verses, we see God's care and concern for the Levites. God loves his people. So now in our reading, we're about to enter a very sacred spot. The sacrifice for sin and the importance of blood. So let's read Deuteronomy 12, 13 through 28. <clears throat> Be careful not to sacrifice your burnt offerings anywhere you please. Offer them only at the place the Lord will choose, in one of your tribes, and there observe everything I command you. Nevertheless, you may slaughter your animals in any of your towns and eat as much of the meat as you want, as if it were gazelle or deer, according to the blessing the Lord your God gives you. Both the ceremonially unclean and the clean may eat it, but you must not eat the blood. Pour it out on the ground like water. You must not eat it in your own towns, the tithes of your grain and new wine and oil, or the firstborn of your herds and flocks, or whatever you have vowed to give, or your freewill offerings or special gifts. Instead, you are to eat them in the presence of the Lord your God at the place the Lord your God will choose. You, your sons and daughters, your men servants and maidservants, and the Levites, there are the Levites again, from your towns, and you were to rejoice before the Lord your God in everything you put your hand to. Be careful not to neglect the Levites as long as you live in your land. When the Lord your God has enlarged your territory as he promised, you and you crave meat and say, I would like some meat, then you may eat as much of it as you want. If the place where the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far away from you, you may slaughter animals from the herds and flocks the Lord has given you, as I have commanded you. And in your own towns, you may eat as much as you want. Eat them as you would gazelle or deer. Both the ceremonially unclean and the clean may eat. But be sure you do not eat the blood, because the blood is the life, and you must not eat the life with the meat. You must not eat the blood. Pour it out on the ground like water. Do not eat it so that it may go well with you and your children after you, because you will be doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord. But take your consecrated things and whatever you have vowed to give and go to the place the Lord will choose. Present your burnt offerings on the altar of the Lord your God, both the meat and the blood. The blood of your sacrifices must be poured beside the altar of the Lord your God, but you may eat the meat. Be careful to obey all these regulations I am giving you so that it may always go well with you and your children after you because you will be doing what is good and right in the eyes of the Lord your God. Okay, five times we heard him say, do not eat the meat. I think God was serious. Or do not eat the, drink the blood or pour out the drug, blood. I think he was serious. 
I think he had something important to say about that. So let's dig a little more into why it is so important to not eat the blood and the meaning of blood. So let's look at Leviticus 17.10. Any Israelite or alien living among them who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from the people. For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourself on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Therefore, I say to the Israelites, None of you may eat blood, nor may any alien living among you eat blood. Any Israelite or any alien living among you who hunts any animal or bird that may be eaten must drain out the blood and cover it with earth, because the life of every creature is in its blood. That is why I have said to the Israelites, you must not eat the blood of any creature, because the life of every creature is in its blood. Anyone who eats it must be cut off. So the blood of the animal was the atonement for sin. It couldn't be eating, eaten because it was for God, for the atonement of sin. The blood is the life, and God created this life. It is his. The blood or life was offered up to save the life of the people who deserved judgment. Why? Because every sin is unholy and wrong and deserving of death. Every sin. That is how holy our God is. We just heard what the Israelites were instructed to do with their blood. They were to pour it out. They were to put it on the ground. They were to not eat it. They were to have no part of it. But now, what do we do at communion? We drink the blood. We drink the blood. If the blood is the life, and we drink the blood of Christ at communion, that means the life of Christ. The life is in the blood. We just heard that over and over again. The life is in the blood. If we drink the life of the blood of Christ, that means the life of Christ is inside our body. The blood at communion is symbolic of that truth. If we have accepted Christ as our Savior, his purity is in us, living in us. We have become the temple where the life of Christ lives, the holy presence or the name of God. We don't dare defile this temple. We treat it as holy. In the past, the blood of the sacrificial lamb was given up to God for atonement, to him directly. Now, God infused himself in the man of Christ and shed his own blood directly, the perfect blood. Remember the teacup I told you about at the beginning of my talk? Remember how she dove in front of the running dog or sacrificed her body to protect her treasure? Well, that's what God did. He came down and he dove in front of sin and death. He offered up Jesus' blood and he saved us. He saved his precious possession. In your reading of the Bible, have you ever come across a story about a sacrificial animal being brought back to, from the dead? We know people were brought back from the dead. Well, a sacrificial animal couldn't be brought back from the dead because the blood was used up. It transferred into atonement for sin. But with Jesus, it was different. He was the atoning sacrifice. His blood was shed. But he was brought back from the dead. This was miraculous. Sometimes that falls deaf on us. 
But th that is miraculous. That is a huge change in all that has existed up to this time. His body and blood were given up as atonement, but then God brought the body and blood back. At the Last Supper, the disciples knew of that sacrificial ritual. They had been sacrificing animals. They knew that the blood must be poured out. But Jesus needed to connect the dots, and he does it at the Last Supper, and he explains it to them. Can you imagine their reaction? Wait a second, this isn't how it's done. I don't understand. At the end of the crucifixion, Jesus was pierced, and blood and water flowed out. And you can find that in John 19, 31 to 34. His blood poured out for us as an offering up to sin after he died. So think about that. I mean, God is such a God of detail, which we see when we read about the animals and the clean ones and the unclean ones. So in the time of sacrificial ritual of animals, you killed an animal, then you poured out their blood. Out their blood. What happened to Jesus? Most of the time when people went to the cross, they didn't, they didn't die as quickly as Jesus did. But Jesus was so tortured, he died early than they expected. And so if you remember, they had to break uh, the legs of the other criminals so that they would die because it was, uh, had turned dark. Well, Jesus was already dead. Just like the sacrificial animals, he died, then the soldier pierced his body and the blood poured out. They didn't pour out the blood first, and then he died. No, he died, and then the blood was poured out, just like the sacrificial animals. Deuteronomy 12, 29 to 32. The Lord your God will cut off before you the nations you are about to invade and dispossess. But when you have driven them out and settled in their land, and after they have been destroyed before you, be careful not to be ensnared by inquiring about their gods, saying, How do these nations serve their gods? We will do the same. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, because in worshiping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. See that you do all that I command you. Do not add to it or take away from it. Do you like how Moses talks about idols and goes on to something else and then he comes back to idols again? Why do you think he does that? Because he knows our hearts and he knows we need to continue to hear about it. But what I think is interesting and what just kind of occurred to me yesterday is does he really change the subject? He was talking about idols, and then he was talking about the sacrifice for sin, and then he was talking about idols again. So is that the reason that he talked about idols again? Is he showed why not to worship idols? Because of what has been done in the sacrifice. They let their idols so control them that they burned their sons and daughters in the fire. <clears throat> How often do we burn our children or friends because of our pride or selfishness? Those are sins, but they're idols too. As you listen to the next series of verses, think about an idol you may have. And visual, visualize yourself doing to the idol what God calls the Israelites to do to the false prophets and idol worshipers. Now, while he's talking about people, you can insert your idol into the place of those people. Your idol of the heart could be a false belief, like the belief that no one cares about you or loves you, that you don't matter. You have so ingrained yourself in the belief that you've actually come to relish those thoughts, to worship or dwell on them. Or maybe you've spent time with a non-Christian and have started to follow their worldly line of thinking. Okay, do you have your idol in mind? All right, let's read Deuteronomy 13. If a prophet 
or one who foretells by dreams, appears among you and announces to you a miraculous sign or wonder, and if the sign or wonder of which he has spoken takes place, and he says, let us follow other gods, gods you have not known, and let us worship them, you must not listen. Don't listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. It is the Lord your God you must follow and him you must revere. Keep his commands and obey him. Serve him and hold fast to him. That prophet or dreamer must be put to death because he preached rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. He has tried to turn you from the way the Lord your God commanded you to follow. You must purge the evil from among you. If your very own brother or your son or your daughter or the wife you love or your closest friend secretly entices you saying, let us go and worship other gods, gods that neither you nor your fathers have known, gods of the people around you, whether near or far, from one end of the land to the other, do not yield to him and listen to him. Show him no pity. Do not spare him or shield him. You must certainly put him to death. Your hand must be the first in putting him to death, and then the hands of all the people. Stone him to death, because he tried to turn you away from the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Then all Israel will hear and be afraid, and no one among you will do such an evil thing again. If you hear it said about one of the towns the Lord your God is giving you to live in, the wicked men have arisen among you and have led the people of their own town astray, saying, Let us go and worship other gods, gods you have not known. Then you must inquire, probe, and investigate it thoroughly. And if it is true and it has been proved that this detestable thing has been done among you, you must certainly put to the sword all who live in the town. Destroy it completely, both its people and its livestock. Gather all the plunder of the town into the middle of the public square and completely burn the town and all its plunder as a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God. It is to remain a ruin forever, never to be rebuilt. <clears throat> None of those condemned things shall be found in your hands, so that the Lord will turn from his fierce anger. He will show you mercy, have compassion on you, and increase your numbers as he promised, on oath to your forefathers, because you obey the Lord your God, keeping all his commands that I am giving you today, and doing what is right in his eyes. It's, it is a strong statement for what he calls the Israelites to do to those people and to their teaching. It is a strong statement for what we should do to our idols that replace God so often in our lives. Okay, now we get to the exciting part of clean and unclean animals. And you know, everything in me doesn't want to read all about these animals, but it's God's word, right? So there has to be something so important. And sometimes it, it requires us to dig a little deeper. And so as, you, as we talk through these animals, think about our detailed God. And how this matters to him. This mattered to him, to the Israelites. And so that's important that we concentrate on that. So Deuteronomy 14, 1 to 21. <clears throat> you are the children of the Lord your God. Do not cut yourselves or shave the front of your heads for the dead. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, the Lord has chosen you to be his treasured possession. Do not eat any detestable thing. These are the animals you may eat. The ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roe deer, the wild goat, the ibex, the antelope, and the mountain sheep. You may eat any animal that has a split hoof divided in two and that chews the cud. However, of those that chew the cud or that have a split hoof completely divided, you may not eat the camel, the rabbit, or the coney. 
Although they chew the cud, they do not have a split hoof. They are ceremonially unclean for you. The pig is also unclean, although it has a split hoof. It does not chew the cud. You are not to eat their meat or touch their carcasses. Of all the creatures living in the water, you may eat any of the any that has fins and scales, but anything that does not have fins and scales, you may not eat. For you, it is unclean. You may eat and clean. You may eat any clean bird, but those you may not eat: the eagle, the vulture, the black vulture, the red kite, the black kite, any kind of falcon, any kind of raven. None of those sound good anyway. So why would we want to eat them? The horned owl, the screech owl, the gull, any kind of hawk, the little owl, the gray owl, and white owl. The desert owl, the osprey, the cormorant, the stork, any kind of heron, the hoopy, and the bat. All flying insects that swarm are unclean to you, thank goodness. Do not eat them. But any winged creature that is clean you may eat. Do not eat anything you find already dead. Why do you think that is? It goes back to the blood. You may give it to the alien living in any of your towns, and he may eat it, or you may sell it, as a, it to a foreigner. But you are the people holy to the Lord your God. Do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. And so why I mentioned it goes back to the blood, if it's dead, and the blood has settled in it. Okay, so my ESV Bible commentary talks about clean and unclean animals, and it says Leviticus 11 is a parallel verse to Deuteronomy 14, 3 through 21. So here are my notes from that. The chapter explains which creatures were considered clean and which were considered unclean. The rationale of why a creature is placed in one category versus the other has puzzled commentators throughout the ages, and there is still no consensus of opinion. Typical explanations include a concern for hygiene, so God in his wisdom maybe knew what was right for them to eat that wouldn't cause them to get sick, a death motif, i.e. unclean animals were somehow more associated with death in the Israelite mind. More recently, it has been argued that a creature is unclean when it does not conform to established norms. For example, an Israelite's established norm for a four-legged creature would be a cow or a goat, since they were the herd and cloak animals. A pig is thus unclean because even though it has four legs, it is unlike the norm in that it does not chew the cud. In evaluating the above approaches, it is probably fair to say that no single one of them can provide a rationale that works for all animals in this chapter. As a result, there might be a number of different reasons why an animal was considered clean and unclean. While the rationale of the classification is still debated, the purpose of the laws is clear. In brief, they were to help Israel, as the Lord's holy people, to make distinctions between ritual cleanness and ritual uncleanness. Significantly, making these distinctions in the ritual realm would no doubt serve as a constant reminder to the people of their need for making the parallel distinction in the moral realm as well. Further, adherence to these foods, food laws expresses Israel's devotion to the Lord. Just as he separated the Israelites from other nations, so they must separate clean from unclean foods. This is why the restrictions can be removed in the New Testament, in Acts 10, 9-28, when the Jew versus Gentile distinction is no longer relevant in defining the people of God. For Israel to obey these dietary restrictions also shows that the people honor the Creator who has the right to decide as they are his creatures. A clean animal is one permitted for food. And I think this is really interesting. It is clear that classifying an animal as unclean is not the same as declaring that animal evil. God cares for all beasts, clean and unclean alike. Okay, so if we remember back to Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 8, 
that verse said, See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations, who will hear about all these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. So remember, God gave them these decrees to set them apart. And if, they set, if he set them apart and the other people saw, they would see that there was something different. God's laws will set the people apart from others. They will be amazed at the righteousness of the laws. So what would it look like if we as Christians today looked different because we obeyed God's laws? If we all kept the Sabbath day holy? If we all didn't covet or didn't lie? If we all honored our parents? How would we look different as a people? Just visualize that in your mind. So are we surprised at all that Jesus was such a controversial figure in history? If he was completely holy, which you know, we know he was, can you imagine what that looked like? And can you imagine why it riled some people and drew some other people to him? So let's move on to how we tithe and trust the Lord for provision. Deuteronomy 14, 22 to 26. Be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. Eat the tithe of your grain, new wine and oil, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name, so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. But if the place is too distant and you have been blessed by the Lord your God and cannot carry your tithe because the place where the Lord will choose to put his name is so far away, then exchange your tithe for silver and take the silver with you and go to the place the Lord your God will choose. Use the silver to buy whatever you like, cattle, sheep, wine, and other fermented drink, or anything you wish. Okay, I love to talk about tithing, but I don't have time. So here's my brief synopsis on it. Tithing gets a bad rap. Does it have to be 10%? Is it 10% of the net or is it 10% of the gross? Should I tithe if I'm in debt? I have no money to tithe. Well, that makes it all about us. But remember what the text said at the beginning that we read, what we've learned earlier. The tithe, yes, it's an act of obedience, but really, it's a call to rejoice with God and what he has given us. Let's reread the end of verse 26. which I left out. Then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. If we don't tithe, not only are we missing out in blessings, which scripture clearly outlines in Proverbs and in Matthew and in Malachi, but more importantly, we are missing out on communing and rejoicing with our Holy Father. So there are two parts to this. Do you tithe? And if you do tithe, do you rejoice in giving the tithe as if you were sitting at the feet of God saying, Lord, I am so thankful for what you have given me. Here, here's a very, very small portion of your gift. Deuteronomy 14, 27. And do not neglect the Levites. We've heard that somewhere before. Living in your town, for they have no allotment or inheritance of their own. Deuteronomy 14, 28 to 29. At the end of every three years, bring all the tithes of, of that year's produce and store it in your own towns. So the Levites, who have no allotment or inheritance of their own, 
notice the Levites, and the aliens, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied, and so that the Lord your God may bless you and all your work of your hands. He wants to bless us, just like he wanted to bless the Israelites, but he requires obedience, trust, and holiness. So let's go back to something we've learned before. Do you remember when we studied about Moses' rebellion at Meribah, Numbers 22 to 13? So remember, he um, struck the rock in one way um, the first time, and in the second way, he didn't follow God's commands directly um, to get water out of the rock. So notes from the ESV study Bible describe the events. Complaints about the lack of water characterize the journey from the Red Sea to Sinai, and now they occur again. In both situations, Moses struck the rock with his staff. That, this is what he had been told to do in Exodus 17:6. but on the second occasion, he had been told to speak to the rock. This deviation from carrying out God's instruction led to Moses being condemned not to bring the assembly into the land. Since this seems like a minor error, it has been suggested that it was Moses' anger, which God took exception. But verse 12 seems to make it clear that it was carelessness and attending to God's command that was the real issue of the verse. It was his carelessness in attending to God's command. Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people, as the prime mediators of God's law to Israel, Moses and Aaron had to be exemplary in their obedience. The failure to follow the divine instruction exactly led to their forfeiting their right to enter Canaan. God is so holy and morally upright, and every command he gives is so perfect that to waver in the least from it is unholy. Yet we're unholy repeatedly. Daily we turn a blind eye. We are bitter. We don't love our neighbor. We tell white lies. We are selfish. We lust. We covet. We have idols. Yes, we have the saving blood of Jesus. Hallelujah. But in the New Testament, we are still called to holiness. How do we get so far from holiness? Over the years, we become dry, dead bones, rotting away because we lack the awe and reverence for our Holy Father. So unable to reflect him because of the idols we reflect, we become unholy. So bear with me for a minute as I give you a description of an animal that is decomposing. This is from Wikipedia. Decomposition begins at the moment of death caused by two factors. I have, I have no idea of half of these medical terms, so I'm going to butcher them. Autolysis, the breaking down of tissues of the body's own internal chemicals, and enzymes and putrefaction, the breakdown of tissues by bacteria. These processes release gases, such as cadaverine and putrescine, that are the chief source of the unmistakable putrid odor of decaying animal tissue. Prime decomposers are bacteria or fungi. Though large scavengers also play an important role in decomposition if the body is accessible to insects, mites, and other animals. The most important non-insect animals that are typically involved in the process include mammal and bird scavengers, such as coyotes, dogs, wolves, foxes, rats, crows, and vultures. Some of these scavengers also remove and scatter bones, which they ingest at a later time. Okay, so now let me do a little editing and read to you the decomposition of the human heart. Decomposition begins at the moment of sin, caused by several factors. Me, which is the breaking down of my God-given heart by my own internal desires. And the world, and my idols, and the breakdown of my heart by those surrounding me. 
These processes release a smell that is a putrid odor of a decaying human heart. Prime decomposers are, are the idols of the world, though large scavengers also play an important role in decomposition if the body is exposed to secular ideas that lead us astray and also our own apathy. So what pre prevents the decomposition of our hearts? I'm going to jump to Ezekiel 37, 1 to 14. Did I put that in the handout? Okay. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out, of the, out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, O oh, sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound. And the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was, there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Oh, my people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live. I will settle in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. The Holy Spirit, Christ in us, revives us. Christ in us revives us. We have his blood, his life in us, the life that was perfectly holy, perfectly set apart. With his life in us, we can be holy. We are sinners, no doubt, but let's not th let that be at the forefront of our minds. Let's let Christ in us bring our dry bones to life. Will you please stand as I read this last verse from 2 Corinthians? So 2 Corinthians 7.1 Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Amen. You're dismissed.
much we have lost as we look down the road where all the prodigals have walked and one by one the enemy has whispered lies and led them off as slaves but we know that you are god yours is the victory